you know, we kind of find ourselves today right in the middle of Ephesians, right in, in chapter 4, but don't feel like you might be on the outside looking in this morning because this is a, this is a text starting in verse 17 that, that has something for all of us. It deals with, with everyday, real-life issues that all of us will be able to identify with. It was written almost 2,000 years ago, this letter, but, but this is totally practical, totally relevant for all of us today. As I said last week, if you were here, these instructions were written to the church in Ephesus. And so we need to, need to see them in, this, in that context, as instructions written to the church for the church. Uh, so if you're part of this church or another church, I encourage you this morning to listen to God's word and to, uh, as you listen, to make the necessary changes in your life and then, uh, and then apply them to your church wherever that might be. If it's here at Tasquin Mission Church, as it is with most of you, let's see how we can apply these to the relationships that we have with our brothers and sisters in this church. So open your Bibles to Ephesians 4 if you're not there yet, and I'm going to read verse 17 right till the end of the chapter. Ephesians 4:17. So this I say, this is Paul writing, this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles or just as the nations also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as the truth just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. Rather, he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This is God's authoritative, inspired word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it uh, teaches us. We thank you that it guides us. We thank you that you have given your spirit to do that work in our, in our minds, to convict of sin and to guide us and to lead us into all truth. And Lord, we pray that that would happen as a result of what we have just read and as a result of what we will learn from what you have given us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would uh, speak to us this morning as we look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, just like last week, what... You notice in this section is that it is all about the Christian walk. We saw that way back in, in 
in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And now we see it again there in verse 17. So I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. And so it's talking here about our, our lifestyle. It's talking about our, our conduct. Talking about our behavior, our actions. The life of a Christian, according to the Bible, is, is made up of two things. Two things that we've seen here in the book of Ephesians. There's knowledge, knowing about God, knowing the truth, knowing sound doctrine, knowing that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. But it can't end with knowledge. Knowledge always needs to lead to actions, and and Ephesians is split nicely into two halves, talking about that knowledge of God in the first three chapters, and chapters four to six, talking about the actions that result from that knowledge. You can say that you know God, but if you're doing something totally opposite to what a godly person would do, there would be some doubt cast as to whether you actually got the first part, whether you actually know God. And the Bible talks about this in different ways. And one of those ways is like I talked about with the children, the pictures, picture of tree and fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. By their fruit you will know them, the Bible says. But by far, the most frequent picture that the Bible gives us is of the Christian walk. From Genesis to Revelation, this image keeps coming up over and over again to describe the relationship between man and God. Before Adam and Eve sinned, way back in the garden, God is said to have walked among them. But as soon as they sinned, there in chapter 3 of Genesis, Genesis 3.8 says, They heard the sound of God walking, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And ever since that, there's been a separation, a cut, cutting off in that walk, in that close relationship between man and God. But along the way, the Bible says that there were certain people who who God looked upon favorably. Genesis 5, it says, Enoch walked with God. Genesis 7 says, Noah walked with God. And God describes the obedience that he requires from his people in, in walking terms. He says in Deuteronomy 1, you shall walk in the way the Lord commanded. And in the very first verse of the very first psalm, we see that there's a a wrong way to walk and a right way to walk. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And I had a friend of mine who used to, every time he saw walk in the Bible, used to draw a little stick man on the left hand of his Bible. And every time he saw it as he walked, as he went through the Bible, he'd mark, mark a little one a little bit farther down on the page. So when he flipped through his Bible... He could see this little man walking down the pages of his Bible every time he saw that word. And so this, this theme just works its way right throughout the scriptures. And Paul picks up the image in his letters too. Just like Psalm 1, Paul contrasts a wrong way to walk with a right way to walk. There is a kind of walk that is fitting for Christians. And there's a kind of walk that is incompatible with being a Christian. A great summary is in what we just read in Galatians 5. If we live by the Spirit, Paul says, let us also walk by the Spirit. In other words, if you're a Christian, your life should follow suit. There is a way to walk that befits someone who has been saved out of the world, someone who has been rescued from darkness, 
Someone who's been made alive together with Christ. And in chapters 1 to 3, Paul went to great lengths to, do, to explain how pe- people are saved and what they have been saved from and what they have been saved into. We were without God, and now we are in Christ. We have a union with Christ. We've been saved from one way of living, and we've been saved to another way of living. We are now different people, and that difference should show up in how we live, in what we do, in how we talk, in what we say. So make no mistake about it. This is, this is a hard thing for Christians to figure out how to do. That's why the Bible keeps coming back to it over and over again. For some reason, unless we make a conscious effort, we just keep drifting back into the old walk. Even though God has saved us out of, as Peter vividly describes it, he saved us from dog's vomit, we seem to want to go back in all the time. Why would we want to go back there, Paul says, or Peter says? This is why Paul writes this. Don't walk like the Gentiles walk. Don't walk like the ungenerate, unregenerate world walks. In fact, don't walk like you used to walk. In this section, Paul calls for Christians to lay aside all behavior that is incompatible with the recreated life. Especially, it shouldn't show up in the church. He starts there by talking about our behavior as emanating from our thoughts, from our minds. What we say comes from our minds, what's in there. And the first thing he describes there in verse 17 to 19 is that a darkened mind will manifest itself in impurity. A darkened mind will manifest itself, will show up in impurity. Paul tells them to walk no longer as the Gentiles walk, also in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Paul describes there who they were before they responded to Christ, before their eyes were opened to be able to see the Savior. And this describes us then, it describes all unbelievers now. The big issue is that they don't know God and they don't know his son Jesus. They're they're dark in their understanding. There's no light there. They're excluded from the life of God because of ignorance. Those words all have to do with with their minds. In order to become a Christian, spiritual eyes have to be opened. And spiritual eyes can only be opened through a supernatural work of God. And that amazing work of God we call enlightenment or regeneration or grace. Now I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And what's the remedy to that? It's amazing grace. Sing that song all the time. Or 2 Corinthians 4 4. We just read it during communion time. The God of this world has blinded the eye. No, he's blinded the minds of the believing so that they might not see the light of the gospel. Notice it's our minds that we're blinded to perceive, to understand truth. Now, if you think about that, it kind of sounds like unbelievers are not responsible. And on the surface, that seems to be the case. Their minds were, were darkened. Someone else, it says in 2 Corinthians, was blinding their minds. It was the God of the, this world that was doing that. Yet the next line there in Ephesians 4, in verse 18, says that they are ignorant because of the hardness of their heart. It's their 
hard hearts that refuse to see God, even though he's all around them. He's in creation. The Bible says that the law is written on everyone's heart. And he's in their conscience. Yet they refuse to see. They refuse to worship the creator. So ultimately, they are responsible and culpable for their ignorance, for their refusal to acknowledge God. And what happens when they have a hard heart toward the things of God? Verse 19, they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Once someone hardens their heart, eventually they become callous. You know, we talk about calloused hands. A carpenter has calloused hands. Or a guitar player, you know, has calloused fingers. They, they just start to lose the sense of feel in their fingers or in their hands. If our consciences become calloused, if our consciences become hard-hearted, even though the person has the law written on their hearts, over time they don't feel the gravity of their sin anymore. They don't feel the gravity of their lawlessness. And when that happens, this is saying, look out. They give themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. There's an old saying that says, garbage in, garbage out. And that's what this is. Whatever is in your mind will show up in your conduct. Hard-hearted people with futile, dark, ignorant minds that exclude God end up practicing every kind of unbridled impurity. It's a downward spiral. They can't get enough. When you put in, what you put into your mind will eventually find its way out. Jesus said this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You could say actions come out of the abundance of our heart. So if you are here today and would not describe yourself as a Christian, this is how the Bible describes your condition without Christ. My question would be to you once you read this, and you can read a lot of other passages, Romans 1 talks about the depravity of man as well, and actually expands on it quite a bit more. My question would be, does that concern you? Now, you might object and say it, you know, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not that, talking about sensuality and, and all kinds of impurity. I'm a pretty good person. But, but listen, it says this all starts in the heart. And Jesus says, even if you have looked at someone with lust, you have committed adultery in your heart. In other words, you have broken that commandment. And that's just one of them. For all of us, our hearts are desperately wicked. And we're all guilty for not having obeyed God's commandments. That's where our guilt comes from. That's where that separation from God comes from. There is none righteous, Romans says. No, not one. Well, the good news is that that's not actually finally true, that there is none righteous, no, not one. Because there came one who was righteous, only one, namely perfect God, perfect man, Jesus Christ. While we are all guilty of impurity, Jesus Christ is the essence of complete purity. And because God the Son was completely perfect in his obedience to God the Father's commands, he was able to suffer and die and to receive the full cup of God's wrath for, get this, for your sins and for my sins. It's what we just remembered as we partook of communion together. That was the only way God's wrath against our sins could be satisfied. 
And as proof of the sufficiency of that sacrifice, God raised his son from the dead, and now he lives in heaven. And he will be coming again. If you admit that you have sinned, that you are a sinner, and if you repent of your sins and trust Christ's sacrifice as the atonement for your sins, the Bible says that you will be saved. For my Christian brothers and sisters, this is written here for you. And Paul is telling you today not to walk that way anymore. Walking that way is incompatible with who you now are. And so you need to hear this warning. I need to hear this warning. You need to to heed this warning because you still sin. The church is is a family of recovering sinners, isn't it? You still live in the flesh. But Romans 6.12 says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. The warning is here so that we don't go back there. So that we don't ever get content in our sin. So that we ever, don't ever get complacent in our sins. So that we keep fighting to purge sin in our lives. If we don't do that, sin can make our hearts hard. can make our sins it can make us insensitive, can make us calloused. So make sure you continue to keep every thought captive to the word of God. Pray that your conscience would never get deadened to sin. Pray that the Holy Spirit would never stop convicting you of sin. And then confess your sins, knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. So if that describes the mind without Christ, what has changed? Well, that comes in verse 20 and following. A darkened mind, we know, will manifest itself in impurity. But a Christ-affected, an enlightened mind will manifest itself in holiness, the opposite of impurity. Paul is saying, you were, verses 17 to 19, but you're not that anymore. You did not learn Christ that way, he says there, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him. Christ has come into your life and he's radically changed the course of your life. Those are all educational words. You have been, you have learned Christ. You have been schooled by Christ. And since your mind has been schooled by Christ, you have graduated to where you are now in Christ. And so your life and your actions and your lifestyle should be noticeably different than what they were before. There should be a change. There should be a transformation. In the words of verse 23, it says, your mind has been renewed. It's a new mind. It's a, it's a newly created mind. What difference does learning Christ make? Well, a couple of things. One is it that empowers you to lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted by the lust of deceit. And it empowers you to put on the new self then, which in the likeness of God has been, has been created, has been recreated in righteousness and holiness of truth. We don't have to give in to sin anymore. We are now empowered to resist Satan. Satan does have power, but it is a limited power. And now that we are in Christ, we are empowered to resist him, resist temptation, even though they might seem so strong. Now I know, especially for you that are new Christians, this isn't easy. And we can see that right here. To kill old ways of living is actually to become a a totally different person than you were before. And to get rid of the only way you ever knew how to live. But this is saying that it is doable. And it's doable because God has already done something in us. God has created our new self in righteousness and holiness of truth. 
God has created you again, and he has made you holy. Before you were, he's created you physically, now has recreated you spiritually. And so the secret to overcoming your sin is to recognize that God has remade you in righteousness and holiness. He is now with you. He is now in you through his spirit. And even though struggles are ahead, just know that you are not a slave anymore. Again, as we read before, to those old patterns. You've been freed from those. You've been changed. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. The other thing to say about the change is that it happens as, is that we are renewed in the spirit of our minds. You can see that there in the text. The way to get from verse 22 to lay aside the old self to verse 24 where we're to put on the new self is through verse 22. It's to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Our minds need renewing. And we know that from what we just read. Our, our minds were darkened in their understanding. They were futile. They were ignorant. And that led to all sorts of impurity. Genesis 6.5 says that Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, this is just before the flood, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart, not his actions, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was continually evil all the time. And 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And so there's a problem in the spirit of our minds. And so we need to be continually putting effort into renewing our minds. And when our minds are renewed, actions will follow. So how do we do that? How do do we do that when our minds are constantly getting filled by the world? How do we renew our minds when everybody around us seems to live one way, and yet we're told here to live a different way? How do we renew our minds when the ways of the world entice our minds with pleasures and and joy and and leisure and money and, and status? How do we renew our minds when everyone wants us to conform and yet we're told, Romans 12, to be transformed by the renewing of your minds? Why is this so hard? Why is this desire to live like the world so strong? Well, The call to be holy is a call to be separate. We have been separated by God. It's a call to be distinct. So the first thing we need to remember is that God has recreated us, verse 24, in righteousness and holiness of truth. As Christians, we have already been made holy. We have been set apart from the world to God. And at the same time, we are still being made holy. We are already holy, yet we're still becoming holy. And so what's our part in that process? Well, verses 25 to 32 go on to give us four ways to be set apart. And just like uh, Paul, Paul does here, I'm going to go through these real quick, even though I'd like to camp out on each one of them for a, for a while. But here are four ways of behaving that flow out of a renewed, recreated mind. The first is truth speaking marked by a concern for the body. Look in verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for, because, because we are members of one another. Laying aside the old life means you lay aside, for one thing, falsehood. In other words, don't lie. Why does Paul start there with lying? I mean, it is the, the ninth commandment, but I think even more 
fundamental is because truth is the most basic quality of the Christian life, isn't it? When we embrace Christ, we embrace truth. The very person we embrace, Jesus Christ, embodies truth. I am the way, Jesus says, the truth and the life. So at the very basic level, when God saves us, he takes us from the realm of falsehood into the realm of truth. And so lying then is incompatible with our new life in Christ. Truth and untruth can't exist, can't coexist. Proverbs 12:22 says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Now in all these characteristics that he's about to give, Paul doesn't just tell us what not to do. He starts there, but he also tells us what we should do and why we ought to do it. Here he says, speak the truth. Why? Because we are members of one another. He's saying lying has no place among the family of God, no place in the church. It obscures the gospel to outsiders, and it infects the purity of the church, of Christ's bride on the inside. Now lying can include a wide range of things. It can include you know, embellishing a story to make ourselves look good, I just read this week, and that's what kind of brought that one up. I just read this week a story of a seminary president in the United States who was exposed for lying about his past just to try to give himself more credibility. We need to speak the truth, and we need to be committed to the truth, especially in the body of Christ. Our fellowship with each other is based on mutual trust. And so when there is untruth, it affects our fellowship with the other parts of the body. Second, a renewed mind is characterized there by controlled emotion marked by a short memory. Why do, I, why do I say it that way? Look at verse 26. It says, Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. This actually tells us, interestingly enough, that there is a right time to be angry. Be angry, but do it in the right way, in the, and in the right circumstances, and don't do it in a sinful sort of way. Even Jesus was said to look with anger at the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. And we know when he came to the temple, he had some righteous anger going on. And he overturned all the tables and got rid of the money changers and all the things that were going on there. That prohibited his house from be, being a house of prayer. And God the Father is justifi- justifiably angry with sin. He's a God of wrath, the Bible mentions over and over again. So anger is the right response when it involves the reputation of God of, or it involves a blatant disrespect of God's word. And so we should be righteously angry against things like some of the social ills that we have, abortion or racial discrimination or when we're, you know, people are trying to legalize same-sex marriage, those sort of things. But our anger must always be controlled emotion. It can't ever lead to another sin. And it shouldn't be an enduring anger. It should have a short memory. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. While God is a God of wrath, the Bible also says that he is slow to anger. It's part of his self-description of himself, slow to anger. And James 1.19 says, now we should be slow to anger. We should be slow to anger and quick to get rid of it. There are times we need to get mad, but it's only for the moment. The key is 
Don't let it become a settled condition in your head. If that happens, anger can turn into outbursts of anger or bitterness or uncontrollable anger, all things that the Bible condemns as sinful. Just like truth is part of God's nature, so is the fact that he is slow to anger. And we better remember, we better be grateful that God is slow to anger with us. And then we need to treat other people, especially in the church, that same way. Thirdly, we should be characterized there by diligent labor marked by generosity. Look at verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will give something to share with one who has need. Prohibition here is against stealing, but we're focusing on what we should be characterized. Here it has to do with sharing, with, with generosity. To steal means to take possession of something that doesn't belong to you and to use it as your own. It can be shoplifting, stealing items, any kinds of uh, items that you can steal, or it can be stealing time. It can even be something like plagiarism, which is taking credit for something that is original to someone else. All of that is breaking the Eighth Commandment. Rather than stealing, Paul says he must labor, performing with his hands what is good. It's talking about acquisitions, really, isn't it? The, the wrong way to acquire things is to steal. The right way to acquire things is to work for them. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, stealing is the desire to have something without effort. It's the desire to want the maximum by doing the minimum. So we're to work hard instead of taking shortcuts. And the motive for our hard work is generosity so that he will have something to share with those in need. Again, it should be just a natural outcome of the gospel in our lives. The final goal of our work is not to have, but to give. We work hard in order to give. Jesus worked in order to give, didn't he? Jesus accomplished our forgiveness through much toil and suffering. It says he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so now, as his, as his blood-bought, needy children, we must work in order to share with those in need as a reflection of what Christ did for us. Well, finally, Paul talks about our words, about what comes out of our mouths. He says, newly created Christians will be characterized by edifying speech marked by grace. We can use our words for both good and evil. James talks about the power of the tongue, and he says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And then he says, my brethren, talking to believers again, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. For Christians, our words ought to be different. Our words should show evidence of God's blessings to us. Our words should show evidence of the fact that we have been made holy. Proverbs 12, 18 says the same thing. There's one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Paul calls all this unwholesome talk. That means corrupting, uh, foul, uh, rotten would be another word for it. And I don't need to give examples of those things in, in our culture. You know what they are. But John Piper, he mentions four categories of rotten talk. He says, taking the name of the Lord in vain, it's one category. Trivializing terrible realities, using the word hell 
in a trivial sort of way? Referencing sex and the body in vulgar ways? And then speaking in mean-spirited ways? You can all fit various things into those categories. Christian, in this day and age, talking in a wholesome way means you're, you're going to be swimming against the tide, doesn't it? Whether it's at work or, or children, whether it's at school, or even on the playground, unwholesome talk is everywhere. What would never be said on, on TV or radio even 15 years ago has almost been normalized now, hasn't it? What would be bleeped before is, is now played unedited, even on the 6 o'clock news. To say nothing of the commercials that are out there. Paul says, Christians should not let that stuff proceed from their mouth. Or we could add, in this day and age, I'm sure Paul would have written from the keyboard, as we have all sorts of so- social media these days, and Twitter and Facebook and blogs and all those sort of things. What should proceed? Only such a word as is good for edification according to the need. Only something that has value, purpose. Only that with all, which ultimately gives grace to those that are within earshot. Godly people will use their tongues in God-honoring ways for God-exemplifying purposes, namely to give grace to those who hear. How God has acted towards us again motivates what we say to others, especially to Christians. And so often, what we say serves to build us up, doesn't it? We love to talk about ourselves, don't we? But Paul is saying the standard is that if it doesn't build up, then maybe it's not worthy to be said. Our words should be other-centered. And so let's work hard to turn our conversation from ourselves toward those with whom we are talking. And verses 30 to 32 are all connected to our words. Not speaking in an edifying way grieves the Holy Spirit. All that means is that the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to talk like pagans. Doesn't want us to talk like the world. Doesn't want us to have anything to do with the talk that comes from the world. He is God. He grieves when we say something that is inconsistent with who he is. Our words should not proceed from bitterness or clamor or wrath or anger or slander or malice. But grace-filled words proceed in kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is the way a Christian ought to look. These are the characteristics and attitudes that rise up out of a mind and heart that has been changed by God. These are the characteristics all of you that profess to be Christians should strive to put on. Should strive to wear especially as we relate to each other in the family of God. They're all traits that describe our Lord. And they are traits that should describe us who say that Jesus is our Lord. So how are you doing with all these? I'm sure that as you go through that list, there's probably one, maybe two, that stand out more than some of the others and that are some of the issues that you face. One that you particularly struggle with. I know there's at least one or two for me. So which one is it for you? Whether that be fudging with the truth or, or anger or, or stealing or taking shortcuts or whether it's that which proceeds from your mouth. Think about which one of those you need help with. Now how will you go about changing that? 
I encourage you, as you think about that, to look to Christ. And as you think about what he did for you on the cross, resolve to lay aside your old self, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and then to put on the new self, which it says here, in the likeness of God, God-like, has already been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us to be holy as you are holy. Lord, we know that standard is impossible to achieve, but help us to strive towards that. Thank you that you have already, in one sense, made us holy, that you have already set us apart. You have called us to be your people. You've called us to walk in a manner worthy of of that calling. Lord, help us, we pray, to live holy, set-apart, distinct lives from our world. Help us to reflect your glory into a culture that lives mostly in opposition to your laws. Help us to lay aside everything that does not conform to your word. And then help us now to put on the new self, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Pray that you would strengthen us for that task. In Jesus' name, amen.